were in Beirut, marking six months since the Beirut blasts and several hours following Lukman Slim's assassination. And we're joined by Dalal Mawad of the Associated Press, Joey Ayoub, host of the Fire These Times podcast, Carmen Jaha, an activist and associate professor at AUB, and Samer Makadam, an activist and member of Mintishreen. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Dalal, thank you for taking the time to speak with me, especially while you're commuting, and uh, um, you're, you're very kind to reflect on, a, on an important marker, uh, a marker that has impacted, I think, anyone who either lives in Lebanon or cares about Lebanon, or for that matter, anyone who saw the blast happen on the news, this startling footage that shook the world six months ago today. And I appreciated your voice when we recorded earlier, reflecting on the pain of the moment. We talked about economics and politics and many things, but I think it would be nice to maybe reflect on the marker itself today, especially given that you wrote a recent piece in the Washington Post that I really appreciated, really addressing collective trauma and psychological scars that that may well be permanent. So if, if we can just start with your, maybe your initial reflection on the marker itself, if it even has any particular meaning to you, and then we can kind of go back in time a bit to six months ago, but I'd like to start with today. Does it, does it resemble, does it mean something significant or is it unfortunately just a marker and a marker that we've sort of grown used to over time? We always have markers in this country without progress. So I'll, I won't interrupt you here, but just any thoughts you have on, on the marker itself. Um, you know, I would like to think this is not just a marker and it shouldn't be. Since that day, we've been living with, you know, the, the pain of not knowing the truth, not finding any justice. And I did not have anyone close to me die. Uh, I can only think of all the victims' families who are really seeking truth and, and justice to be able to heal and I think that today we, we're still grieving, we're still broken, and we share one thing, that is, that is this collective trauma. Because even for a city like Beirut that's witnessed so many wars and bombings, um, never had so many people at once witnessed the same traumatizing event at the same time. And this is something that I feel that I share today, six months on, with everyone living uh, in Beirut and living in, in Lebanon. And I'm afraid that we are nowhere near healing and we will never heal without any justice. And it scares me that we are nowhere near justice, nowhere near truth, Roni, unfortunately. Um, because this national investigation um, you know, is, 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 is fraught with a lot of, of issues, political um, I mean, interference, the probe has, has stopped, uh, it hasn't progressed. Um, the president has denied once again an international investigation, which is the demand of most Lebanese I've spoken to because they just don't trust the judiciary. And so when I when I reflect, when I woke up this morning, I just went back to videos on my phone and I watched a video I filmed early on the morning of the fifth, uh, you know, the, 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 the morning after. It was one of the few people who drove on that road adjacent to the port very early around 6 a.m. Yes. And 
I feel like, you know, there's, there's a burden that I've been carrying. And I think many Lebanese share that for the past six months. It's, it's that pain, you know, of feeling guilty to be alive, of, <laughs> you know, at the same time, you live with that fear of dying again. It's really the pain of, of loss because Beirut will never be the same. We will never be the same again. This is a blast that changed our lives forever. And this is why I would like this not to be just another marker. You know, we, we, we wake up and we're supposed to, to mark this, to, to reflect uh, and to demand, you know, truth and justice. And then uh, we are met with, you know, news about uh, a Lebanese activist, intellectual, writer, a staunch critic of Hezbollah, who was found uh, dead in his car in the South after disappearing overnight, according to local media. And, you know, it, it makes you wonder. Um, we, we were supposed to be putting our, our energy and our attention on something today, and then it's, it's, it's going somewhere else. Are we entering a new phase of killings and assassinations in, in Lebanon? Um, it just... Uh, I have no words. It's it's not what I expected to be doing today, to be reporting on on the death death of you know uh, someone like Lukman Slim. It's um, it's disturbing. You know, I'm 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 happy that you emphasize the issue of justice. I, I wrote myself a short piece in early uh, late December, early January, talking about that issue, and linking all types of crimes, whether they're assassinations, like what happened this morning whether they're the blasts that shook the city and tore the city apart, that there's the sense of robbed justice, that we're not able to move on because we don't have that justice. So I'm really happy that you emphasize that point. And I, I want to maybe gauge your mind on just where you were six months ago and whether or not you saw the kind of downward spiral that we're in right now, or whether you thought back then that things were going to finally change, that there were enough people willing to push through and see that this situation doesn't persist. Just your immediate emotions going you, back. You mean months. after after the blast or before the blast? Just after the blast and then the impact of the blast and everything that happened, the good and the bad, the good including civil society, the volunteer effort, the yeah. protests that took off again, and in a way there was some momentum, and the bad, of course, which is included, including everything that's happened, the economic collapse that got worse, the political crisis that got worse, and a murder that we woke up to this morning, reminding us that those crimes are continuing. You know, before the blast, I thought we had hit rock bottom. I, uh, with the pandemic and you know the the unprecedented economic crisis, I thought that's it. Mm. And I remember tweeting saying, you know, is is there a basement underneath that I can't see? And then the blast happened, and I just I just couldn't believe it. It it mm. wasn't rock bottom. There's clearly we can go down further. And it was just. My feelings now thinking about what happened six months on is at the beginning, it was just after like shock. I was shocked and it was disbelief. And then it was just grief, a lot of grief uh, after a phase of denial, of course. I mean, it took me a few days after reporting on the aftermath and reporting on the blast to be able to cry. And I remember that what broke me yeah. was the news that that little girl, Alexandra, who looks a lot like my daughter, who's, right. who's the same age as my daughter, died. And I remember hiding in uh, the archive room at the AP and just weeping and weeping for an hour. Um, and it was very, very painful back then to, 
to report on on the blast and to be able to dissociate with you know my personal feelings and how personal the story seemed to me i've never reported on a story that felt so personal and so painful um i thought after the blast that you know that big protest that i i i I, I took part in and I was reporting on was really the momentum and that things were going to, to change and, you know, things were picking up again because, you know, there was a halt during 2020 because of the pandemic and other factors, you know, people were not on the streets anymore. Right. And I, I was wrong. I don't think Lebanon's answer is on the streets. I think there were a few factors that stop people from going down, including the pandemic, but that's not the only factor. Right. Uh, and I started looking at this a bit differently. And I wrote a piece on the anniversary of, you know, the one year anniversary of the protest movement, which some people would call a revolution, but I'm, I'm very skeptical about that word. Um, and I think that what happened after the blast, how people came together despite their pain and you know their grief and, and their loss, and are today rebuilding Beirut. It's the Lebanese, it's the residents of Beirut who are building Beirut. It's not yes. the government, it's not the politicians. This, I, I thought, was another face of that so-called revolution. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, these people who have come together to help each other rebuild their city are really providing an alternative. They're providing an alternative to people who have voted for these traditional political parties and leaders for, uh, for so long. And that gives me hope. And I think this is our, it's a long and arduous process to change. It's not gonna happen overnight, but I feel like this is a glimmer of hope and, and it's, it's maybe the future or because people never really, um, got to justice, they never overcame the, the grudge and, 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 and what they've been through during the civil war. Right. We need truth, we need reconciliation, we need justice. These are things that have been absent from Lebanon's history throughout. I'm not just talking about the blast, even after the civil war. And so people will not heal. People I've spoken to for that piece I, I wrote who are deeply traumatized and really braving very deep psychological wounds um, they want justice. They're never going to heal. I mean, they're traumatized forever, but to be able to heal, people need justice. Fully agree. Joey Ayoub, host of the Fire These Times podcast. I think I had mentioned the other time we spoke about the Beirut blast, that it, it usually takes me a while to, to properly digest what happens in the sense of having like the emotional reaction that I know will come, you know, in the next few hours, the next few days or whatever which is why in those initial moments, I tend to actually uh, document, write, um, have a kind of record, an archive that I can then reuse or rethink about or re-whatever. It's mm -hmm. become a bit of a routine at this point, unfortunately. My initial uh, thought was uh, I'm fairly well connected with Iraqi activists mm -hmm. and was to think of the moments of where they, when they would be reacting. You can almost, there's almost a script on, at this point. Obviously, no one's doing it consciously, but the way we react is is human and therefore predictable in, in some ways. There's shock, there's disbelief, there is anger, there is uh, what have you, all of the above, all of the emotions at the same time. And my, my immediate reaction was to message a few friends of mine who are, unfortunately, we have to say this, but like who are from the Shia community in Lebanon, and who live in Dahi, especially, or in, in Nabatiyeh, 
And just to make sure, like, uh, are you fine? Uh, do we need to worry about also this? Like, are you planning on being very vocal online? I have a friend, obviously, won't mention any names, uh, who is gonna stay low uh, for the uh, for the next few weeks until he plans to to travel. He doesn't live in Lebanon anymore. Um, and so that that was my, that's my initial like it's the same as after the blast in some ways. Immediately think of like the immediate like is everyone fine? When where did this happen? Okay, nobody. Is. So people in Dahi are probably fine. So I, I checked with the only other friend I know who still who lives in nobody. I checked with him. He's fine. And just like these immediate um, reactions. Then I started having these other thoughts, and all all of this is we're talking like about the past two hours now only. Sure. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other thought is well, what what does this mean? Uh, you know, I put on my analytical skill hat on or whatever, and it's it's um it's not good <laughs> i mean what how 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 else do, do, does one describe it there is a line uh i just described it on twitter like there's a line that i think activists in general instinctively know where it is like we know like if yeah. this happens this is what it means or this is what it might mean obviously we don't know for sure but we right. know what the likelihoods are yes and the line usually is if someone who isn't highly ranked like a highly ranked politician which unfortunately would be more quote-unquote uh, expected right yes not that any of this is good yeah yes 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 uh we it's like well if they're focusing on someone who like is prominent but he's just an activist at the end of the day like he he, he, he did not have a a political platform he was the co-founder of umam the for those who don't know, basically one of the best NGOs working on memory in both Lebanon and Syria for that matter. And there is obviously a Syria link here with Hezbollah. And it's 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 incredible that, well, this is where we are. And it's not the first time we've seen threats against people of, uh, let's say, his level of prominence. So like not highly ranked politicians and not uh, lower ranked, quote unquote, activists. And all of this right. is a higher, obviously, in terms of power. Um it's not the first time he's been having those for a long time. He's mentioned 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 them himself like many many times. Yes, uh, I believe like the the last time I saw him was in two thousand and eighteen, early two thousand eighteen, and it was uh, he was just part of this panel after a play on Anders Breivik, the Norwegian terrorist. Right. Yeah. Um, and he spoke about uh, well the links of trauma and memory as far as I can remember, and it's just yeah, it's it's. Um, Surreal. As soon as I, my my initial thought of when I I I I told myself, well, he probably got killed, is when uh, like about fifty or so minutes, almost exactly before the confirmation, we heard that his phone was found, right. uh, you know, on the side of the road, and it 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 doesn't happen that come that frequently for someone to just lose their phone in the middle of the road. So this is when it became the links became a bit more obvious. Obviously, I didn't know that he was killed. I thought maybe he's kidnapped. Maybe he's being whatever which you know the group also does from time to time but yeah uh, unfortunately we got the confirmation about a couple of hours ago that he was indeed killed you shared something which was rather personal that you were planning to do an episode with him and that you had been in touch to to set that up and that i mean mm -hmm. it yeah i it's you know it's 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 amazing how 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 terrifying and terrible and all these things these words that are used all the time and how much we're used to this too, that you can, I mean, we know people now, we know many people that have paid the ultimate price 
and we're in 2021 and we're six months away from the Beirut blast and we're still dealing with the old issues and it's almost like the worst mix possible. If this happened to someone else that is of a similar uh, renown, let's say, as Lachman, uh, you might see him telling you right now what I'm what I'm telling you because I'm I'm almost paraphrasing him. It's actually Ronnie, like it's a bit surreal, but um, I don't know. If, so I'll just show you. Um, I have a book chapter for the PhD. Look, it's here. Okay. Yes. It, yes. It's fine. You don't have to read what's on it. But <laughs> one th- one thing that's on it is the right to forget, quote unquote, as gaslighting. A look at Elian Rahab's Sleepless Nights, Layali Baranom. And that move, documentary by Elian Rahab follows a former warlord, Asad Shaftari, with uh, Mariam Saidi, whose son was kidnapped and forcibly disappeared during the war. He was with the Communist Party at the time, most likely by the Lebanese forces at the time. And so Asad Shaftari is part of the LF. And so they were, that was part of the documentary, like putting them together and mm-hmm. seeing that tension. But anyway, one of the ex- exhibitions that they go to see the missing is the one organized by Umam. It's called The Missing. That was in 2008 or something like that. Right, right, right. And this was is the, 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 my mind. the Lebanese that were missing in Syria. The yes, yes, yes. Syria, right, Syria yeah. and, and some that are still uh, also in mass graves throughout Lebanon. But yes, both. Yeah. Um, and so the link in my mind is a bit haunting. What I usually do every morning, and uh, like you, I sometimes have also that bad tendency. But today, or for the past few weeks, I was preventing myself from checking the news, whatever, in order to work on the PhD because you need some time and whatever. That's true. It just so happened that I needed a tweet. I needed to find an actual tweet related to Umam. It's insane I'm saying this. Related to Umam to include in, in the book chapter that I saw, I saw someone mention, uh, I think I, it was his wife mentioned that he was, uh, you know, he went missing last night. Yes. And when that happened, uh, like that's it, like the day was done and me and my friends were checking the news and, you know, the usual stuff uh, uh, came into play. But yeah, it's something that's very, uh, it's what I do. My, all of what I'm doing right now is studying how memory is weaponized in Lebanon. Can, can I ask that's you, the, and, and this sorry, is, yeah. I mean, no, no, I'll ask you as a PhD researcher focusing on uh-huh. this issue, and I like that, that description with the weaponization of memory, is that... I mean, I, I, I never think of that, actually, when it comes to steering the narr- narrative back to fact rather than fiction. Do uh-huh. you think someone like Lukman, like, like Lukman Slim, his role, was it in trying to rethink Hezbollah's, r- r- maybe almost tackle the base, pushing them to reinterpret Hezbollah's propaganda? Do, do you see yeah. that? that, that, that among other things. And do, and is that, in, in a way, is that a red line? And, and whether it's Twitter or whether it's a- anywhere, is that a line that's not being crossed out of fear? M- meaning that Hezbollah's yeah. narrative is what dominates there. And therefore, if you, if you start tackling that issue from within, you get eliminated. Is that is that sort of the paradigm right now that we're in? We're, we're, yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's, yeah. it's some people have compared it to many countries. I don't think the comparisons are very accurate, but there are some comparisons with Iraq. I think that's very obvious. So Hashem, Iraq, Hashem, 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 the not so long ago as well, right? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. Iraqis have it much worse. It's it yeah. happens frequent, more frequently. It's a bigger country as well, and uh, you know, much more violent recent past compared to Lebanon, although it's just like two decades uh, separate. Um, so that's why I mentioned like kind of following the the this line that that we've been talking about, which is a bit ironic because that they always speak of a khat al you know, Nabi whatever. Like you you can't you can't criticize these people. They are the red line. But the actual red line is not necessarily that, like it's actually fairly flexible if they feel you're a threat, if they don't feel you're a threat. It can look good for them that they ignore you. Like it can look good for Hezbollah if they ignore people who hate Hezbollah because right. they don't yeah. feel that's a threat, which obviously raises questions as to why this would happen right now, of course. And you will have the conspiracy theories and you will have everyone who will ask questions, well, who benefits? And some people will say Israel and some people will say Assad and some people will say everyone except the most direct clear answer and so when you speak about Lachman's name one of the you know if you speak about that exhibition that I'm, I'm studying and focusing on right now just specifically as we're talking right now in this chapter um, one of the uh, things that the families of quote-unquote uh, they disappeared as if it's like this vague category and we don't know who kidnapped them although usually we know who kidnapped them and forcibly disappeared them um, well how they would describe a combination of like well Time uh, was frozen. The day yeah. Maher, the son of Mariam Saidi, the day he was uh, forcibly disappeared, and he was 15 years old, I should say, in 1982. Or um, they would describe things like there's no real past and there's no real present and there's no real future. Everything is sort of mumbled into what one academic, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Walid, I might get the wrong, Walid Rad, if I'm not, I might get the name wrong, he called like the protracted now. So like it's now that is always prolongated. It's always extended. It's always the present. And so the past is the present and the future is the present. It's part of the reason why in Lebanon it's so difficult for us to even picture a future. Like literally sitting down right now and trying to think of what next year is going to be like. We yeah. have zero idea. That's true. That's it true. could be like one of the famous warlords died because he's very old. Like this might happen. Yeah. One, someone can, might get COVID. Someone can, might a building might collapse. There might be some other fucking explosion as far as we know. You know, like it's the, the fact that we cannot predict the future is partly, it's not just that, it's partly a result of the fact that we've never actually recognized the past. Because in order to create the future, you need the present. In order to actually formulate a present, something coherent in the present, you need to be at least at peace with what happened in the past. Or at least recognize it has to have a name. We don't even have names for it. We call it the We call it the events. As if, you know, or very vaguely as well. As if we don't know that there were specific battles at specific times, specific people doing specific deeds against specific people, and you know, killing specific victims who have names, who has who have backgrounds, who come from you know, all of these things, we blur it out by saying war post-war. And so if we say war post-war, A, we say that the poor, the war was one thing, like that it wasn't multiple things in one, which it was. And then we say the post-war, as if the post-war was the same thing for everyone. As if going in the 90s in southern Lebanon under occupation is the same as going up in the 90s in Beirut under other occupation, under Syrian occupation instead of Israeli right. occupation. Yeah. And that's simply not what happens. Our experiences of our own lives in Lebanon is not the same. Uh, it actually changes depending on our own upbringing, where we were raised, what our, whether it's gender, uh, class, uh, uh, private school, public school, what have you gives us different uh, exposures to different experiences. And it just so happens that we have in, in Lebanon the uh, very well-studied case by now of one party that managed to actually uh, maintain a hegemony 
over more or less an entire population, entire percentage of the population. Hegemony is not approval. Hegemony is not support. Uh, most Lebanese Shias, as far as I know, may not even support, quote-unquote, Hezbollah. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what, what can they say? What can they do about it? What are the options in front of them? And this reminds me of when there was the, the, municipal, the municipal elections. There was a, I forgot his name, but there was a candidate who was running against Hezbollah for the Shia seat in yes, Ba'ar. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that he said is very important, and I actually quote him as well in the research. One thing that he says is that we respect the resistance, but. And so in the but, he's able to say what he wants to say. But he has to start with, we respect their yeah. resistance. Right. He has to start with that. Yeah. If you have to start with something that you don't actually believe or you don't want to say, you have hegemony. That's how it works. You have something that has been implemented. You have to follow the narrative and then you can sort of disagree with it. But you're disagreeing with something that has been pre-established. You're, you're, you're not playing by your own rules. You're trying to play the game whose rules were implemented by someone else. You, in this specific example, Hezbollah. But the Lebanese system as a whole since 1990. And for me, this is what it also boils down to. For me, Lukman Slim was assassinated because of what he did. You know, it's very simple. It's very, it's almost like mundane to say so. But this is why it matters. Why what he did, why was it that it led him to be murdered? And this is something that we need to think as a society. Are we that terrified of simply someone saying something? Like that's all he was doing. He was saying things. He was writing things. He went on TV, spoke, gave interviews, did exhibitions, did some artwork, uh, implemented a number of very interesting civil society initiatives. That's it. That's all he did. He had no Kalashnikov. He had no bazooka. He had no tanks, no army behind him, nothing. And that still led him to be murdered. Carmen Jaha activist and associate professor at AUB. You're the most committed activist I know. Uh, you've been doing this for a long time. You lured me in, in a way, to this orbit for many reasons. And you're also an academic, you're an analyst, and you have skin in the game. You're somebody who's still in Lebanon, who doesn't need to be here, but chose to stay. And uh, for all those reasons and, and others, I just I want to know what it means to you to be here six months later, to wake up with tragedy, and how, 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 how you approach it on your terms, and I mean in a very immediate way, for you individually, what the marker means. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I think what you're doing, Ronnie, is so important. It was important before the explosion, during the revolution, and it's becoming increasingly important uh, because our voice and our well-being are under threat. And uh, by doing this, I think you're recording a very important part of history that often the warlords tend to record. So I'm fascinated and I, I'm you know, very uh, honored to be here. The, I think the six month marker started with me like yesterday afternoon. Um, mm. And I think that I'm feeling it in my body. Like I think we internalize trauma and shock. I couldn't get out of bed. I, I usually get out five, six o'clock, I'm, I'm functional, especially Lately, with you know all the post-explosion activism and trying to fit it with my own work, so right. I've been operational. You know, 6 a.m. I'm operational, and I I couldn't get out of bed. And then the news about uh, Lukman uh, Slim, uh, I I'm feeling it physically in in my body. 
I, I don't know how else to explain it. Like, I just feel like my limbs are exhausted and my back hurts and I, I just want to be left alone. You lumped me as a, or you didn't lump me with them, but you sort of offered this uh, a, a comparison. The warlords offering their memory and then citizens that are offering their memory. Do you see that as under threat today? Yeah, memory and interpretation of events uh, and, and you know, who, right. we're, who we want to hold accountable and how we read history uh, is under threat um, because I think that the tensions are so high that the propaganda is so deeply entrenched, not just in the states, but in, in, in the state itself, but in everything that we're seeing manifest after the explosion, their version is that they are saviors. And all of them means all of them means all of them except my Zaim. And when Lebanese people are saying, this is how we look at living with our jailers, basically, because this country has been taken hostage. Nobody asked us to give up our rights. It doesn't matter who has the majority, right? This conversation about majority legitimacy is we have majority, right? We are the, we are the, the sovereign govern, govern, governance of these people. And we're saying it doesn't matter who has majority. There are inalienable rights. I don't recall that we voted when Aung came to power that we should give up all of our rights. I don't recall us voting to agree to live near explosives. So that is very much under threat. And I think that's a lot of the work that you're doing right now in terms of putting a different narrative out there is important. And that's for a long time, I think what Luqman was trying to do. And, and, and for me, the six month marker with his assassination is like when I walked down five days after the explosion and near Sodico, there were still 56 people missing under the rubble in the explosion. And I parked my car and I walked down and there's a big ICRC uh, mural that says right. the ICRC yes. has been helping the Lebanese government find it's disappeared since 1975. Okay, so it's a vicious cycle and these yeah. issues that we, that we you know, they, they keep coming back. Um, on hope, I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't think it's about, I think the word optimism is reductionist. It's a bit silly. It's not about being optimistic, but hope as a political choice of escaping the vicious cycle is the only way forward. What is the alternative to, to sit down and wait to die? Okay, I can stop because some people criticize this hopeful attitude and I understand where it's coming from, but what is the alternative? Let's just wait to die or let's count our blessings in terms of, oh, I could get food today. I refuse this. So in that sense, yes, I'm extremely hopeful. And hope is a political choice. To say that exactly what you're saying, Roni, this version of history and this version of reality is not the version that we want. I'm going to ask you, because I, I like the way you're steering this in a, in a natural way. Uh, you, and you brought this up earlier in our earlier conversation about the politics of hope and that you still hold on to this against all odds. Can I ask you to go back in time to the immediate aftermath of the blast, not the not the visual, not not the carnage, not the glass, not the not the violence or the the death. And I'm going to ask you to try to see a few days later when the protests started again, that there was this there was this energy that had sort of diminished since October 2019 that seemed to be resurfacing. Is that more or less? the politics of hope that you're talking about, meaning that you just, you have to wait for these things to happen again. And otherwise there's not, there's nothing worth fighting for. Or, or is it that something that has not been done yet needs to be done? And I, I mean this in a very broad way, protests, street movement, all the demonstrations, and then 
almost 18 months later, it's hard to see what happened really in terms of progress other than breaking taboos maybe and, and challenging authority effectively. The situation has completely fallen and collapsed. All the rhetoric against political violence, all the attempts to stop that pattern, and then you wake up at the six-month marker and there's an assassination. Is the politics of hope more than just hoping on, on, on your terms? I mean, which, which means really, are you expecting something to happen at some point so that things can change? Or are you really just waiting and hope is just a, as a way of pacifying time. Because I'm, I'm curious what hope means when things are so bad right now. Even when people are criticizing somebody for being hopeful, what does it mean to you right now to wake up? And you're saying your, your body is in pain. You don't want to move. I feel that too. And I, I want to kind of maybe, I want to better understand what hope is for you right now. That's too much. To, it's a very loaded question. Um, Optimism that, that's is why, in the that's world. Why, that's why I'm good at editing. You'll never know. The, you'll never know. <laughs> you asked me like a thesis. Can you provide me a PhD of what you're... <laughs> the epistemology. Yeah. Optimism is a worldview, okay, that you consider that things will be good no matter what. And that's a passive attitude, okay? There's a big literature on hope and the dark being based on action. So I, I kid, I'm not sitting around all day, although I would like to and waiting or hoping for the best. Absolutely, I think hope through action, an action that's not only the street. I'm writing a paper on the 10 years after the Arab uprising, and I'm toying with a, a title. I don't know if I will have the guts to publish that title, but basically the protests are old fashioned. In Lebanon, hope doesn't come only from the streets. It has mm. to come from political organizing, because when you protest, you intend to put pressure on uh, an opponent that will budge. So you're optimistic that they care and that they might budge. I think we tried. They're not budging. You know, they right. bombarded the city. They're still not budging. The economy collapsed. They're not budging. All these people dying in COVID were saying, please, who decided to open up the country for the holidays? They're not budging. We protested for six months. They're not budging. So I think that hope needs to come from something else. And I think, and I, I think that I'm right in that it's coming from these uh, resistance movements that we see. I think your podcast for me, culturally and socially and politically, is an act of resistance. It's resisting one version of the truth, one image about Lebanon and saying here, I'm not only gonna say, I hate their version, I'm gonna produce another version. And I think we're seeing this a lot today in the humanitarian response with the diaspora to the explosion, the way that we're looking and approaching businesses and health and education is a mode of resistance. We're saying, I'm not gonna protest because they don't have the solution. They, they're, 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 they're warlords, they're gonna shoot at us. After the explosion, they, they use tear gas in a city that still hadn't dusted ammonium nitrate off of the streets when bodies were still under the rubble. So why, why should I protest them? What is it that um, they're not underminable? They're only underminable if we're able to build, to construct an entirely new alternative. So Politically, this... socially, economically, that's it, an alternative. So, okay, so, so if I understood you right, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, y your, your approach to this mess, and in an individual way, is not only reclaiming the word resistance, which I think you've done effectively, you've taken from its usual lexicon and applied it to something that's not associated with it so that's the at least that's part of a reinterpretation let's say and then organization which i think we've always talked about many of us have talked about 
an organization six months after the blast, has that finally begun? And I mean it not in terms of there are some groups that are betting on the elections years from now, or even grassroots organizations that are sort of planting the seeds. I'm not talking necessarily too far in the future. I mean it more that does organization have a chance in a situation like this? I think that we lost many battles since the explosion, but we've won some of them, some of those battles, certainly public opinion all over the world, not just international donors, but diaspora mm -hmm. is adamant. Every meeting I attend, somebody tells me, but no money will go to the state. I say, good, we need the state, <laughs> but we need the state to learn, right? We need the state to know how to develop policy, to regulate. So I think you know, um, we've won some battles. I think that uh, they'll not budge easily. They, they shoot people and they arrest people and they kill people. That's the style. Uh, and they expect us to mobilize on the streets so that they can shoot us again. I think we have to outsmart them. All we have is a little bit of intelligence and the fact that we're stuck here. So maybe we can, we can find ways to, to, to win some small battles. And if we don't, I would rather live this way than live just as an optimist I would love to sit on my balcony all day in the sun or live as a doomsday, you know, pessimist that nothing would, would ever change. But I, I can't I, operate like that. I enjoy your emphasis on the small victories and they are important. And I'm going to add something here about civil society shining and filling in where the state didn't and not just recovery, not just cleaning up damage, not just window repairs. I mean, healing a nation and, uh, whether it's initiatives that sprung up from the blasts, whether it's groups that were familiar with this terrain and reestablished themselves, whether it's groups like when you're, you're part of Khadit Beirut, uh, there's a lot of good stuff that, ha that happened. And, and these are important battles. That, that yes, now, now I will po postulate, now I will do the academic, which is, I think that we need to, we need to politicize these groups, okay? I mean, there's, okay. A, there's a politics behind them, okay? Because for like 10 years, I used to criticize, there's a big critique, NGOization is bad, NGOs are bad. Of course, some NGOs are bad. Some, you know, some churches are bad, some priests are bad, some professors are bad. Okay. Some podcasters are bad too. Some, but... some podcasters, I mean, not you, but some podcasters, are, you know, some professors are boring. But what I'm trying to say is that I think we need to revisit this critique. Um, I think that the new wave of literature around mobilization and experiences is about what happens when people are not on the street. It doesn't mean that there's not a political dissent it doesn't mean that people are not doing collective action. It doesn't mean that people aren't resisting. So when you say civil society, I think our job is to say that this is not just people coming in to clean glass. These are people that, that also protested. Samir Makedam, activist and member of Mintashreen. This is a repeated pattern. We've become so used to these cycles. We've become so used to these things because the common denominator it's still the same. It's still this this regime that's 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 been here, this system that's been in place. That every single time someone speaks about some, you know, uh, going across sectarian lines, about you know building a common history, about paving the way forward, about you know uh, standing up to violence and standing up to intimidation and standing up to terrorism um, uh, through words and through ideas and, and through knowledge is is met with blood. Um, and, and I think that was compounded, you know, the, 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 fir the first thought I had with the explosion was assassination. And then the second thought yeah. was, who though? Who, who like, who, really, who? Because we were left with 
the charlatans, we're left with the thieves, we're left with the ones who are able to broker deals based on, on, on the blood of, the, of their fathers and the blood of the compatriots. That's who we're left with. And that's literally the regime. And I do not you know, want to neglect anyone. Today, there's, you know, there, there's certain, uh, you, you know, obviously because of, because of Luqman, there's, there's the focus on, on, on Hezbollah. But, you know, if you, whoever enabled the system, whoever stood idly, whoever was willing to kind of negate any sort of discussion about how to build a proper state, they have blood on their hands, just like they all have blood on their hands um, over what happened six months ago. I mean, it, it's, it's unfathomable because we talk about, um, you know, saying that this is one of the biggest explosions in, in peacetime, but what's, what, what's, what's sickening is that it's the only explosion in, in history where no one has been held accountable, where people to this day are still waiting to understand why their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, daughters, sons were murdered, murdered for being in their own homes. We're not even closer to the truth. And, and we, it's the same rhetoric, just after you know, the assassination of Luqman, the same thing. Let's go to the judiciary, let's wait for the investigation before, you know, before jumping to conclusions. And, and, and what investigations? I mean, I don't need to say this to you specifically. I mean, what investigations? We've never been able to reconcile with what happened in our country, with what happened in these injuries, with what happened in these deaths. There, there is, we never have the ability to kind of close things and to learn from things. You go back to the war, no one was held accountable. You go back to any moment in history in this country, no one is held accountable. And then they, they, they use justice and say, let's go into investigations. It almost feels like mockery for me. It yeah. almost feels like, yeah, 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 we're just going to say the right nice things and we're just going to continue doing whatever it is that we wanted to go about. Um, but so, I mean, you're articulating every feeling within me and you're saying it from your side. And I want I and I'm I'm sorry I'm interrupting you I'm taking liberty here. No, not at all. I, did you feel this way after the blast? Two, three days when everyone was when there was momentum again, and there was some pressure. Did you feel that this existential issue that you're eloquently describing was it still within you, and then you were in a way in denial? And I mean this, and I don't mean this in any judgment. I don't. I'm not applying any judgment on you. I just mean it that were you accepting the fate from the beginning? Or did you think that there was a chance that things were finally reaching a tipping point and it just, it wasn't met? Because I, I, it's hard for me now, looking back six months ago to accept, even though it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the inertia within me, is to almost accept it as a fait accompli, that things are so bad here regardless, that why would you expect an investigation or, or the way you're saying, why would you want to do it through the, the normal state channels? They're not going to work. So just within you, did you have that feeling or were you not feeling that way in those initial days after the blast? And especially during those, that one day of, of real protest and, and rage. You know, the first, if you want 24 to 30, 30, maybe 48 hours, you know, the, the only thought process you, that's going through your head is, you know, helping you, your, your compatriots, you know, right. making sure that everyone's okay, there's nothing here. But, but right. I, will, I, I, I will raise you to what you just said. By August 6th, by August, you know, by August 7th, the way that the narrative, you know, was moving, the way that the people had responded, the anger that I felt on the street, that, that I saw in people's eyes, um, I didn't think that this was a tipping point. I thought this is it. 
I thought that, yeah. I thought you know this is there's no way that this regime, these murderers, these criminals, uh, will withstand this. I, I, there's no way because forget put politics aside for a second. Put you know positions aside. You know just from a human perspective, just from you know a, a basic human perspective, no regime can stand this. It, it's it, I, I thought that there's absolutely no way that they'll talk themselves, intimidate themselves um, out of this one. Um, so so yeah. So I mean, not only was I hopeful, I I, I genuinely thought, silly me. <laughs> oh, so are you are you now? I mean, and I'm asking you. I know it's six six months in a way. It's strange. It feels like a stretch of time, and at the same time, it's a fairly short period of time to to look back and properly reflect. But are, are you already internalizing this? That there was a a feeling that was robbed from you, and that you are now in that you are now in facing reality, so to speak. Because I'm curious how you woke up this morning, or even even when you realize that it's a six-month marker that's approaching, how you were addressing that yourself and internalizing it, knowing what you said just now, that those were feelings that were real six months ago, but they may not be the same ones today. I, I, you know, I, I, th- I don't think that my feelings today changed. I, I think that, you know, once, and, you know, once this regime withstood the, the port explosion and and once you know to a certain extent got away with it and I know that it's sad to to say that but the reality of it is that they 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 got away with it um, and you know not just the local benefactors you know uh, President Macron's naivety to a certain extent uh, you know the whole international community about how to get out of this mess when when you know the Lebanese were were, were literally saying that you know you, you cannot trust these guys there's we've we've been it we've been on the streets. I don't even want to say a year and a half, but we've talking about, you know, we've about our institutions for what, 10 years now, 15 yeah. years for certain people, 25 for other people that have since the nineties, you know, been claiming the same things. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, for me, my anger today is, 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 is channeled that I, you know, they can't get away with it. They can't keep getting away with it. And, and I, I personally, again, I know that I, I've, you know, sound naive and I know that, you know, a lot of people have told me that, but, you know, it's, it's a feeling that you feel in the pit of your stomach that I refuse to accept that every single person who has been fighting for what I believe in and every single person on one side for their blood go to waste. And then I refuse to accept that, you know, the 200 plus people dead, that the 300,000 displaced and, you know, more that were injured and even more who are holding their mental scars for all of that to go for nothing for all that to go to waste it's not something that i can accept and i can probably forgive myself for being naive i can probably forgive myself for for a lot of things but i can't forgive myself to let these tactics of intimidation win or 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 to give up simply because because we knew this beast we knew this beast you know we knew this beast from 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 day one maybe we were also collectively as a nation extremely hopeful in October 17, thinking that, right. okay, this was it. And maybe we were collectively, you know, I don't want to say hopeful, uh, close to Bas, because I don't think anyone is feeling hope. It was just, you know, this is it. This is our chance. You know, you're, you're in the last rounds of a boxing match and you feel like you can go for the, for, for the knockout. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's, you know that this system is, is, is dead. They just don't know how to bury it. And I think that all these acts that we're seeing right now is, is just, 
I don't know, uh, people whose who's, who's backs are going, I don't know, I don't know, really, I'm, I don't want to come out here and say again, that this, but, but right now I'm feeling, you know, just, just, they cannot keep getting away with it. And no, but you, you know, know you're people who kind of, who you're, kind of, yeah, you, please you tell them, yeah. let's, let's, you know, and, and, you know, where do you start? <laughs> I mean, what is, what is murder? You know, murder is not just, you know, getting shot in the head, you know, four times. Murder is not just getting shot while you're dropping off your kids to school because you happen to take photographs of the port. You know, uh, murder is also being, you know, uh, starved to death because you, you're, you, you completely botched a recovery plan in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, it's, it's murder is not being able to say goodbye to your loved ones because there are no hospitals. Murder is you know, robbing people of their future and, and, and not giving them anything to look forward to. And that regime is, is, is guilty, all of them. And I go back to Killun, Yani Killun, because there's a certain period in time where I'm like, okay, you know, you're right. There are good people in the government and I still trust that there are good people. But now after all this, where the only people who are getting pummeled day in and day out are the Lebanese people. If you're sitting by idly, if you're a good guy who just happens to be in a bad system, you're equally as accountable. It's, 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 it's enough is enough, really. Enough is enough with, 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 with treating us that our, our lives are cheap and, and, and kind of constantly, you know, cementing the idea that this is not a country. This is, you know, a failed state that, that is a jungle that you can go and, you know, get murdered and no one finds out. But, you know, citizens who go and protest for their right and say that they're hungry you know, you are able to go and take them from their houses one by one within 24 hours because you know who was there and you know who threw a rock and you know who protests and you know who kind of organized it. You know, it's a police state. You know, this is, this is what we're fighting against is a police state who tells you that, yeah, there are certain crimes that I'll neglect, but, you know, if you go and you try and protest and I'm going to come after you in your homes. It's bullshit, honestly. I actually admire whatever that is in the pit of your stomach that, and you're describing it in a form of, it's almost a naivety, maybe. I don't know if it's naivety. It may actually be an ex expression of real hope that is, I think the word maybe is underselling it, that that's the lifeline. You're holding on to something because if you let go of that, whatever that emotion is in the pit of your stomach, it's really a defeat. So I, I appreciate that you're still in that, you're able to articulate it and also feel it. And that has lended itself well to things that I deeply admire. One of them is that something I'm fortunate in a way, I walk by it every day is base camp, which Mintishin is part of. And I see it in Jamesi regularly. And I know that you're, you're involved politically, but it's sort of, a, it's, it's, at, it's at the beginning of a long-term project. So for me, base camp, Mintishin, things that have largely emerged, not just from the port blast, but it's, they were shining during the, during the port blast, but really the politics and the grassroots politics that emerged with the October 17 aftermath. Um, I mean, I associate this, I associate that positivity with people like you. And I'm gonna ask you if you can, it's a, maybe a, a loaded question here, but does this type of incident in your mind dampen the appetite for organization? And we've talked about this many times, I've talked about it in many different episodes with many different people, the strengths and the advantages and disadvantages of having a fluid movement. That was really in the initial months. And now you have an individual who's targeted. 
does that does that in a way curtail the capabilities of groups looking at politics in in a way that would translate into authority whether it's mintishreen or any group and even in an individual level does it make someone like you is, does it make you afraid to be more vocal in your thoughts and his case He's vehemently anti-Hezbollah's anti weapons, and we all know that. It's not, there's no secret there. But that talking about that issue, you get eliminated. Does that scare someone into thinking, well, I'll think 10 times, I'll think 100 times before I properly express what I want from this country? And I, and I, I mean, it makes me, it makes me remember several things. It makes me remember my father by default. You wake up with an assassination, and it kind of, it brings you back, it brings back, it brings things home. It makes me remember Samir Asir. It makes me think of all the other individuals that were eliminated trying to express themselves without violence. And then violence returns. So if you can say anything, just, just about the politics of fear and whether or not they have a chance of winning long-term. I'm going to talk about myself as an individual because I don't want to, you know, speak on behalf of anyone, you know, from Intashin, or I want to talk about it, you know, as a, as a political party. On one side, I, I don't think that there's, you know, any bravery in, in just kind of saying that I'm not scared and, and I'll do whatever I want and, you know, kind of, you know, putting yourself out there um, um, uh, recklessly. Um, mm -hmm. I don't <laughs> think that there's any bra anything bravery in that just to say that I, I don't fear being said, but no, we, we again when 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 we asked for what we asked, we knew that this was a war. You know, this is you have yeah. people asking for something, and you have this regime yeah. across the board in their communities who have held people hostages, who have held our institutions. That's it. It's a war, and um, they want you to get scared. That's that's what they want. They they mm. they they wanted you to get scared. They want you to get hopeless. They want you to despair. They want you to think that you know this country is theirs and you have no place for you here, for for you here, and and you know that there's that there's absolutely no light at the end of this tunnel, and I know how and I, this is something we talked about um, off camera when when we met, but it, it's so dark right now and and there's no light at the end of the tunnel right now, but 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 there will be one way one day there there will be and 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 absolutely not you know in in terms of fear because. Samir Asir's words, even though he had, you know, got, got assassinated in 2005, still lived with yeah. so many people who are on the streets on you know, 17th. And Lukman's words will live on and every single person wants to give. And, and that's why, you know, the, the pen scares them because yeah. no one remembers the sword. You know, you, you, you get scared. You might recoil for a little bit. You might, you know, withdraw, but you come back. And, and words never die and ideas never die. And asking for a country governed by the rule of law, asking for, for just basic dignity, for basic public services, for just to live a life of, 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 of camaraderie, of accepting fellow man, you know, that's an idea that won't die. And, and you know, as much as people have, you know, are, are, will try to oppress, people are gonna rise up and they're gonna ask, for, you know, to be free and to, and to live in dignity. You know, there's, there, again, I, I, I don't know, I have so many thoughts going through my head right now, but, but you know, if I just had to simplify it, absolutely not. Absol absolutely not. You know, uh, 
no fear because because you know again why uh, you know based I don't know, we, 200 people, I want to go back to the port as well, just for a second. 200 people died by being in their homes on, at 6 or 7 p.m. You know, that was their crime. And they lost their lives. Yeah. And not one person has been held accountable. And you want me to be scared just because I'm asking for, you know, a, a, a strong central state and I'm asking for a rule of law. And I'm asking for a Lebanese conversation on, on, on the weapons of Hezbollah to, to, to create a national um, kind of, you know, aspect about that. I'm, 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 because I'm asking that, do not divide us by geographical or sectarian lines and let us talk to whoever we want to talk to and let us discuss and let us debate respectfully um, to ask to have elections without intimidation and without people being bought off to really show who's the force in this country. Uh, I'm supposed to be scared of that? No, I'm not. I, I you know, responsible for, for my beliefs and, and, and my ideas. And again, I'm speaking for myself. No, there's, there's absolutely no intimidation, you know, from, from that aspect. You said that there might be a chance of things to change, but if, if, if we, we let the fear kick in, or if we think about that, then, then we have for sure no chance of being able to change anything. And that's also something that I'll never forgive myself for doing. I'm lucky. Again, maybe no. I'm, I don't know. No, no, no. I'll say I'm lucky to consider you a friend, and I, I, I those are the words of reassurance. I, I look, I look for these words in individuals that have, that have been suffering for so long, trying to yield change, and they're still doing it, even if it's taken a different form, even if it's not on the street at the moment. It's in our hearts. It's in our minds, and uh, I appreciate that perspective, and really. Uh, keep that feeling in the bottom of your stomach or wherever it's living. And if you can find it and find a way to share it, because I could use a bit of it from time to time, uh, especially in a day like this, where it's bad enough to be looking back at six months of a port blast that tore Beirut apart, and then also have to worry about political assassinations. It's almost like um, the crimes that we're used to line up in, in strange ways, and they lined up today. And with, with that, I, I really am I'm lucky that you gave me some of your time. So thank you, Samer. Thank you, Ronnie. Always a pleasure. And uh, today's a tough day, but, uh, you know, tomorrow's a new day. And, and, and I think, you know, another lesson about you asked what, what's happening in the next six months. We just need to take it day by day and, and see what we can do. But uh, stay safe and, uh, and I'll see you soon, my friend. I'll see you and keep your Jedi force behind you strong because uh, <laughs> you really do look like the force is with you. <laughs> Take care. Bye, Habibi.